Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and making things and the history of making things. And we usually start by talking about the things we have been making. So what have you been up to recently? I made soap. I, I got some melting pour and I made some bars of soap. That's amazing. One, one of them smells like lavender and is like a blue sky with little shiny white clouds. And one of them smells of strawberry jam and looks like a PB&J. Okay, so I, I know that because you have sent me the blue soap and I used it yesterday and it's fantastic. Um, but I also did see your picture of the peanut butter jelly sandwich soap. <laughs> it's amazing. I couldn't resist. <laughs> what made you want to try soap? Um, I I watch a lot of royalty soaps videos. What are those? That's pretty much it. Um, it is a family soap company based in Texas, and the woman that runs it posts a lot of soap making videos that are just like I don't get on with ASMR, but they're like my version of ASMR. They're just incredibly satisfying to watch i feel like i'm gonna have to look this up and eventually i was just like hey i, I could make soap but i was and scared of lies and also i've never made soap so i've made melt and pour mm-hmm. except now i've agreed to make proper old-fashioned like pre-1850s soap for the children's archaeology club i volunteer at so i'm gonna have to work with lie and also be fat. <laughs> That's kind of a difficulty jump, I feel. Like, I, w- I will probably do an episode on soap in either July or August. Yeah, I've, so I, was I, just so I won't go it. too far into it, but soap is basically at its most primitive level is fat and ashes and then eventually we figured out how to get the useful chemicals out of the ashes but it's still also it's always fat and alkali i feel like a history episode would be a good one like that's that's something that is very domestic that we haven't done yet yeah um, it's getting to special interest territory like T did, <laughs> and then we ended up doing a T episode. So there's going to be a soap episode at some point this summer. Watch this space. Um, so what what have you been up to? Um, just continuing things. Really, I've been cook making. Um, that's almost done. Um, so that is the 18th century cloak for our Wuthering Heights costume project, which will be done in the indefinite future but it's, it's gonna be great <laughs> but i have the cloak almost finished anyway excellent yeah i'm uh, working on the hood and it has pleats that i have never done before so we're gonna work that one out um <laughs> and then i've been doing quite a lot of knitting because it's fun and relaxing so i'm making a shawl and it's bright orange how how bright orange are we talking is this is this the full jaffa <laughs> not quite it's not it's not neon territory okay it's like a nice bright orange 
I should probably explain Jaffa for our listeners who weren't in the Knitting Society at the University of York. <laughs> it's basically this one shade of cheap, bright orange wool that everyone just hated because it was just such a hideous colour. I feel like there was one person who liked it. I can't remember who that was. Yeah, it it was particularly hideous. Like eye-burning orange. Yeah, it wasn't e- even like proper neon. It was just like orange. <laughs> is is off neon a thing? Because I feel like that's the the way to describe it. Off brand neon. <laughs> off neon. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Um, yeah, no, fortunately, mine is not Jaffa. It is pleasant orange. And I'm about halfway through and I enjoy it very much. Nice. Um, so, so, yeah, that is much what I've been up to. So, what are we learning about today? So today I am going to talk about muslin, the fabric, specifically Dhaka muslin, which is very significant for reasons that I will go on to explain. Oh, foreshadowing. Yes. <laughs> and it's quite a good time to talk about it because there is a project that's emerged in recent years to kind of try and recreate and revitalise um like the real handcrafted um, muslin. Uh, so I'll talk about that uh, kind of in the end segment, but it's, yeah, it's a relevant time to bring this up. Um, but also <laughs> because I have seen a few portraits recently. Um, well, the reason that I first started looking at this is because I read a BBC article about this project to revitalise it, which also had some of the history of it. And it turns out that a lot of famous portraits that I've seen um, had the objects wearing um, wearing Dhaka muslin. Um, this, this very, very fine cotton cloth. And so I, I didn't realise. Like, for example, um, the Empress Josephine was a massive fan of this. And one of the most famous portraits of her is her wearing this sheer white dress that is made of Jaka muslin. Um, and also a lot of the, uh, the the portrait of Marie Antoinette wearing the chemise à la reine, like the very kind of floaty, um, white, flouncy white cotton dress. Also um, Indian muslin, Jaka muslin. Um, yeah, it's it's actually kind of a big thing. Um, it's it was massively popular uh, in Europe during the late eighteenth and nineteenth century, um, and it's historically it's been really really popular all over the world throughout history. So, what exactly is muslin as opposed to just like expensive cotton fabric? Okay, so good point because there are many things, there are many fabrics today that you can buy uh, that are described as muslin. Um, they're not really, I mean, they are because that's now the modern definition of muslin. Um, but yeah, because like in my mind, I think of like cheesecloth, and I'm guessing yeah. that's not what 
this is. Yeah, no. Um, so muslin is what you would use today for uh, making a mock-up of a sewing project or in cooking. You might use it to like, um, my granny used it to like cover puddings and stuff, or you might use it for cheeses and um, yeah, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, my phone just beeped. I apologize. Turning that off. <laughs> Uh, so it's a fine cotton fabric that's kind of what the definition of muslin is however what I'm going to be talking about in this episode is the kind of muslin that was available that was coming out of India um, for the 20th century which is a completely different beast in terms of quality um, like the thread counts are insane. Um, like today, a modern muslin uh, might have a thread count, which is the number of threads per inch. So the more threads, higher the thread count and the better quality the fabric. Um, so a, a muslin today might have a thread count of about 40 to 80 threads per inch. The thread counts of this um, this historical muslin that was being made in India were anywhere in the region of 800 to 1200. Oh, wow. <laughs> that so is incredibly high. Um, yeah, yeah, a little bit high. <laughs> Just like exquisite quality. Uh, and as you can imagine, it took a lot of skill to make this. And it, part of that is why I say Dhaka muslin, um, because this fabric was being made in India. And most specifically associated with the city and the region of Dhaka, which is the capital of modern day Bangladesh. And the reason that it was known, that that Dhaka was known for its muslin, um, was because of the conditions they had that were perfect for producing it. Also because of a particular species of cotton plant that grew there and couldn't grow anywhere else. So that's why Dhaka is so famous for muslin. Um, yeah, so this cloth, just to illustrate how like prized it was throughout the world, um, there is a quote from a Chinese traveller in India in the 7th century who says, the cloth is like the light vapours of dawn, which is beautiful. Uh, the Roman author Petronius, uh, writing in the 1st century AD, says the the humorous quote, thy bride might as well clothe herself with a garment of the wind as stand forth publicly naked under her clouds of muslin. So this fabric was was so fine that it was basically sheer. Um, And there were a lot of kind of wits of the day talking about like women looking naked if they were wearing it. That's... I wasn't expecting that to be one of our people have said the same thing forever moments. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but if you're talking about... Because her body, she might as well be naked. <laughs> There'll be another one of those later, but um, I think pretty I much... That's my you know. incensed old man voice. <laughs> I like it very much. <laughs> I think if you're talking about anything to do with fashion and garments, that'll, that'll come up. Really. Mm. <laughs> the the yeah 
So um, it was highly prized in the ancient world, in the Middle East, in China, in Greece. Um, as we can see from these quotes, um, but then also became hugely popular in Europe um, as soon as it was easily available to get, which we're going to get to this later, but that's because of colonialism, mostly. Um, what? <laughs> what? On this podcast? Again. Again. Um, yeah, with a lot of um, material culture history, it, you kind of can't get away from it. <laughs> Should we just rename it to Colonialism Corner? <laughs> Maybe we podcast now. Make it slightly more lighthearted. That's that's what we have now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to address that in a bit. Um, but I also wanted to give you a quote from Northanger Abbey, which is, is the second time we've um, mentioned Northanger Abbey on this podcast. I mean, it's very good. I think the, I can't remember what the first one was. Was it something to do with novels? Um, Possibly. Wait. I don't. I don't. I don't have the transcripts open right now. <laughs> um, so muslin and, and dress are kind of features of this, this novel um, as well. It's a, it's a Jane Austen, in case you don't know. Would recommend. It's a very good book. Um, and the hero of the story, Mr. Henry Tilney, is talking for the first time to Catherine Morland, the heroine. Um, when her aunt comes up and says, do you understand muslins, sir? Because they're talking about dresses and fabrics. And he says, particularly well, I always buy my own cravats and I'm allowed to be an excellent judge. And my sister has often trusted me in the choice of a gown. I bought one for her the other day and it was pronounced to be a prodigious, bar prodigious, prodigious, can I say that again? <laughs> Go for it. Hmm. particularly well I always buy my own cravats and I'm allowed to be an excellent judge and my sister has often trusted me in the choice of a gown I bought one for her the other day and it was pronounced to be a prodigious bargain by every lady who saw it I gave but five shillings a yard for it and a true Indian muslin I, I realise it's not the takeaway we're supposed to have or maybe it is I don't know the context of the quote but just the idea of I'm allowed to buy my own clothes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was thinking that. Like, I always buy my own cravats. Oh, how very cosmopolitan of you. <laughs> <laughs> Such a hardworking man. <laughs> <laughs> Truly a man of the people. Nick, um, you, you studied novels. Do you know the context of, of that quote? Is is he is he showing off how cosmopolitan he is because he knows about fabric? He's um, kind of being nice to the aunt who is like very shallow and just always talks about clothes. Um, but I think it's also meant to be a way of showing like how it contrasts him against the Catherine Mullen's other romantic interest, who's like this really macho, boorish type guy. So I think it's meant to show that he is like he's not like other boys. Polished man, um, yeah, like you know, a man of refined taste <laughs> because he also <laughs> likes novels, and this book is about like how novels are good, actually. Amazing, um, yeah, 
yeah so anyway I included it here to kind of show how um basically everyone knew what a Muslim was at this time right it's it was a big part of dress uh, in Europe as well at this time uh, and in fact he's talking about how much of a bargain it was which is a, a bit of foreshadowing as to um why the Indian textile industry basically collapsed um but also uh he makes a point of saying it's a true Indian Muslim so kind of implying that the best quality ones come from India um which is true they did because they had the specialist skills and and tools developed over centuries um to make this incredible fabric um so yeah what made it so special um so it was produced the finest muslins were produced in dhaka in bangladesh um which history was a part of india the the state of bengal um and so the conditions, um, one thing, you know, that I personally remember from geography, <laughs> learning about Bangladesh, is there's a lot of river and mm. that creates humid conditions. So particularly the uh, Meghna River, um, which the, the cotton grew along the banks of. And this cotton, this particular species of cotton that had the, had the finest threads, along the banks of the river and couldn't be transplanted anywhere else like it wouldn't grow it was those particular conditions where it thrived and it produced this thread that was very very fine but strong enough to warp on a loom so strong enough to be the vertical threads on the room that take most of the tension when you're weaving which is an important point because if they're not strong enough they will snap and then it's a nightmare and you're going to have worse quality fabric makes sense so because of this river as well, um, it created humid conditions which were needed to spin the very, very fine cotton threads. And this spinning was often done um, by young women with good eyesight because you, otherwise you couldn't see the threads. Um, and sometimes it was done on a boat in the, um, in the mornings and evenings when the humidity was most. Okay, so, so almost using the dew to keep it working. Yeah, um, and in fact, today when they're trying to reproduce these, they actually control the conditions in the workshop to make it more humid um, so that it's easier to work with. Because some fibres are easier to work with when damp. Um, I mean, particularly spinning linen in Europe was often done um, using water to moisten it to make it easier to spin. Um, but yeah, so they were also doing this. Eight hundred, twelve hundred thread count, um, and only eight percent of the total cotton harvest was used to make this finest of fine muslins. I guess that makes sense. You just you're only going to be using the best bits to make the best stuff. Yeah, so they would like separate out the the finest and softest fibers would be used to make this this incredibly fine thread um and so that yeah that's why it was so expensive and so prized like these all these conditions combine to make like the perfect the perfect place to make it um but 
that means there is a very limited supply of it because all these processes take a long time and a lot of yeah. people um and you can't you can't really reproduce that even with like modern technology we can't reproduce it because it's it's such a fine tolerance that we don't have the machines to do it it has to be done by hand um yeah so that's why it was so expensive and so prized and so rare um and in fact it was it was pretty rare in europe before the 16th century um in in europe linen was much more commonly worn than cotton uh, silk was available because of trade through venice and the silk road um but not really cotton not muslin although it was very very famous and traded with other parts of the world such as china and the middle east and persia so it became associated with the Mughal Empire beginning in the 16th century, uh, which came to control Bengal and Dhaka. And they were quite well known for wearing white muslin. Like it was, it was part of their dress. Um, and they sort of employed people to make it as well. And also, mm, I say employed, but also, <laughs> kind of exploited um, yeah, um not I'm as much as it, but, um, <laughs> but the history of textile production is is unfortunately quite often a history of people being exploited as well because um i mean history full stop let's be honest yeah <laughs> as much as we love history <laughs> like it, it's an empire therefore they were not very nice to a lot of people <laughs> well, yeah, and also just textile production in general hasn't had a very high status, you know, the textiles themselves have, but throughout history, because it takes so much time, um, it textile production is always an industry where people don't get paid enough for their time, mm. um, kind of wherever you are, wherever in the world. Um, so it was very very popular in the Mughal Empire. Um, in fact, the 17th century Mughal princess Zeb Unnisa, a daughter of the the King Aurangzeb, um, who is also like she is a very interesting like historical person. She was also a poet and a philosopher. Um, so yeah, interesting person to find out about. Um, but she was once scolded by her father for appearing naked before the court. So the legend goes. Uh, to which she indignantly replied that she was in fact wearing seven layers of muslin. Uh, is this where the like seven veils thing comes from? Oh, I don't know, but possibly. <laughs> I have no idea. Because there's there's a thing, um, the dance of the seven veils. Mm-hmm which comes up a lot in um, sort of Orientalist type stuff because it's, um, I think, Salome. Yeah, okay. So I've heard it before in, in that context. I'm, I'm just wondering if there's a connection, but I also have no idea. Yeah, I, I don't know at all. Um, I mean, I guess, like, I would have assumed hearing that that it would be silk fails but i there's no reason it couldn't be muslim um 
But yeah, I don't know. If anyone please let us know. <laughs> um so yeah, um it began to be exported to Europe in the 16th century, um, with like sort of many countries had trade with India at that time. Um and at this point it was you know, this trade was still pretty slow. This was still production in the hands of the country that was producing it. Um, and it was being produced in pretty small quantities because of the, the time and expertise needed. So at this point, it was more expensive than silk even. And as you can imagine, that caused a bit of a demand for it. And partly that demand was uh, one of the reasons uh, why in the 19th century, um, colonialism involved and the Mughal Empire is kind of violently supplanted by the East India Trading Company and uh, actually the British Empire. So, they got away with a lot by just saying, oh, we're a company, we're absolutely not an imperial force, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I feel like when you have your own army, you're a bit more than a company. Yeah, um, there's... Like, there are some things where the distinctions are difficult, and there are some things where you can just say, no, that one isn't just a company. Yeah, I mean, the British East India Company was very much, like, not just a company. Um, I guess company in terms of, like, not so much a limited company as a company, as in, like, we are a bunch of people who are going to do some bad stuff. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's colonialism time, everybody. Um, <laughs> so... The reason that we do not have this incredible muslin anymore kind of because of the British Empire. Um, and this was, this was kind of, yeah, yeah. The British Empire did a bad thing. Gosh, I nearly spit out my tea, which of course is entirely British as well. Um, <laughs> Bengal uh, became under, under the control of the East India Company. Um, they were also able to control the trade for muslins and for Indian cottons. Um, and, you know, they were, of course, controlling other parts of India as well. And eventually the British Empire came to control basically the whole subcontinent. Um, so they were controlling this trade and the traditional industry couldn't produce these fabrics fast enough to meet the massive demand for them in Europe. Uh, so they initially tried to make them produce faster and they couldn't because that's not how you do it. It's not, um, it's not how anything works. Yeah. <laughs> and um, in conjunction with the development of uh, industry in Britain, the Industrial Revolution, uh, they were then able to process cotton in Britain. So they began to produce British, quote 
unquote Muslims and sell them back to India. Uh, but of course, why would Indians buy cottons when they have a whole cotton industry at home? Uh, so that basically led to the British Empire destroying the Indian cotton industry. Um, yeah, by, by a combination of like economic destruction by sort of flooding the market with these cheap British cottons that were made in, in factories in Britain. Um, but then yeah, this, is, this is the time when I'm embarrassed to be from Manchester. <laughs> yeah um i which i mean um to be fair i don't think the people of manchester made a lot of money out of it either um well i mean like the the rich ones did um, the ones doing the work didn't yeah <laughs> um, but even so i mean yeah exploitation across the board basically um yeah. <laughs> and like some people in Britain got very very rich out of it and built some very very fancy buildings which are still there um huh. mm. Liverpool Manchester mm. um anyway yeah I was gonna say I've, I've been to several of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> very nice buildings but also they are made out of colonialism um yeah. so yeah <laughs> but Back to the Indian cotton industry. Um, yeah, that's that's the reason that we don't have these fabrics today, and that the tradition of weaving them has has died out as well, um, because it was it was kind of ruined in the uh, early nineteenth century, and uh, that there is kind of. It survives in a sense in the tradition of Jamdani weaving, uh, which is like a patterned muslin. Um, so it's actually like a kind of tapestry weave, uh, but a very, very fine tapestry weave um, where the the pattern parts, the coloured parts are like inlaid rather than like printed on or, or anything like that. Um, so that is a very, very skillful technique. Um, I will tweet a picture of that because that stuff is gorgeous. It's so beautiful. Um, it, yeah, very, very skilled. Um, and it still goes on today. Um, and it was, I believe there was a revival of it kind of in the 60s as well in um, India. Uh, it was kind of popular. Um, but it is still going on today um they are like they're still around but it's it's not a lucrative profession really um apparently according to some of the quotes from weavers that i've read like it's the kind of thing you do more because it's like your vocation it's your craft rather than like you're not going to make a lot of money out of it um you know there's still a demand for it but it's more of a kind of artisanal demand yeah, it got it got it got um, geographical protection, didn't it, Jamdani? Yeah, in in 2013, it was designated an intangible cultural heritage um, asset by UNESCO. Um, so yeah, that that now has protection, and I believe that it is now um, kind of a lot more well known 
within India and um, and sort of getting more funding and more development and stuff, which is cool. So cool. Um, Protecting yeah. intangible heritage. Yeah. Which brings me. I don't really to... have an end to that sentence. Just do, do it. It's good. <laughs> which, which brings me to the Bengal Muslim Project. Uh, now, this was started off by a guy called Saiful Islam who was working with a photographic agency called Drick in Bangladesh, um, which um, kind of does a lot of, a lot of work uh, around India and with um, sort of crafts and things like that. He kind of found out about this, this heritage of Muslim and was like, well, why can't we that anymore? Like, why why can't we bring it back? Um, so he set out to do that and founded the Bengal Muslim Project. And what they did is they went out the riverbanks and they asked around and they found a possible match for the original hunt. The original cotton plant that was used to make Dhaka muslin. I love that methodology. It's like, yeah. well, should we just go ask some people because they know more than we do? It's great. <laughs> do things. And they I also found an old lady. Uh, always an old lady that knows. It is always like the oldest lady in the village who knows where the good stuff is. Um. And so they uh, they also found, and from an archaeological perspective, this is quite interesting as well. They found out some of the original tools that were used that were like the jaw bones of catfish, um, like really really fine teeth that were used as um, like combs and like beaters um, for the the fabric. Um, yeah, and and so they managed to find this plant that was like. Uh, a partial, quite a big partial match to the DNA of the original plant, of which I think there are still like some samples left. Uh, because these original muslins, um, they sell for thousands, um, like hundreds of thousands. They are very, very prized, these, these examples of the original muslin. Um, I mean, un understandably, from what you've said. Yeah, because you just can't get it anymore. Um, so they then set out to go and find people that could do the weaving. And the people they found were these Jamdani weavers who still had some of these techniques. Um, it wasn't to the degree of fine thread count that the old ones were, um, but they still had the weaving techniques. So. They again went asking around and they were telling people that like, we've got this project, we want to bring back muslin. Um, and you know, we want to do this, this insanely high thread count, like we want to bring back the real muslin. And they pretty much all went, that's really cool. No, I'm not doing that. Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and there was like one guy who said yes. And that's now like their leader of the project who sort of teaches everyone else. 
I support him 100%. Do you have a <laughs> Me too. Um, and I will put a link on the Twitter to the website for Bengal Muslim. Um, which, by the way, I haven't even talked about this, but the term Muslim, um, nobody's really sure exactly where it comes from. Like it might, might come from the French variation on something else. But I believe the Bengali term is Mulmul. Um, yeah, uh, they found this guy. <laughs> and they started their project and as part of this they made a film called Legend of the Loom which I will link to the trailer of on YouTube I don't know where exactly you can watch the film but I will that's a powerful name to find out it is a very good title <laughs> um and on their website there are some fantastic pictures because this guy also came from a photographic agency. So uh, yeah, I will link to the Bengal Muslim website and I would encourage you all to go and check it out. And they have succeeded in reading some sort of new Muslim textiles. They have not been able to get up. They've not been able to re reproduce exactly um, the old counts yet but they've got up there their highest one I believe is 300 counts that they've been able to do and a lot of them have these sort of Jamdani designs woven in um, which are absolutely I mean, 100 is still impressive oh yeah for sure like when we're looking at the, the modern ones of like 80, 80 threads per inch max like that is incredible that they've been able to create this and do it by hand um so they they basically had to adapt um the old technology to the current practices and equipment that they have um they carried out a lot of studies to be able to do this um and they got their master weaver to recreate some his name is al amin um so yeah, they apparently such a fine fabric had not been manufactured in Bangladesh before this project since before the British got involved. Um, so yeah, they're still working with the spinners and weavers. They're trying to they're growing this old variety of cotton, and they're continuing to do it. I believe they have a bigger team now, and. Yeah, they've, uh, in fact, um, I believe, they have brought it back. It's now been designated. Uh, Bengal muslin is now like a thing again um, by, oh, I never, I didn't write down which, which agency it was. Um, but muslin uh, is now... Um, you said so that Bengal Muslim is now a thing. Yeah, so it it has kind of succeeded. Um, they have been given a geographical indication um, by WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization uh, of Muslim. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of their thing now. Uh, so yeah, the future is that is very cool. It is very cool, um, and hopefully they will eventually be available again. 
um, but this time owned by the actual people that made them and developed them. That would be preferable, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that, that has been a short history of muslin. Hello, I'm Mod Pencil from Probably Bad RPG Ideas. If you'd like to hear discussions of ideas such as what if in my urban fantasy game magic turns out to not be real and what is the best rules for an ogre dad then listen to the probably bad podcast which is available on everywhere podcasts are and also youtube or check out our tumblr and twitter i hope you enjoyed it so before we go on to local larder a reminder that if you have an episode suggestion or you just want to say hi, you can email brentfairpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Bread and Thread, uh, where there are teasers for upcoming episodes, links to things that we talk about in the episode, and just things that we like. And also on Tumblr at Bread and Thread. Um. Yes, so we are, I will admit, very behind on transcribing episodes for various reasons, but I was transcribing the Christmas pudding episode yesterday, mm -hmm. and I got up to a bit where we just spend a while dunking on Yorkshire puddings for not being a true pudding, <laughs> so I thought I'd learn more about Yorkshire puddings. Excellent. I, to be honest, it's one of the most obvious regional foods in the UK, so um, it's about time. What did you find out about Yorkshire puddings? Um, I think it honestly just took a while because even though it's got Yorkshire in the name, like you have them everywhere. Like It would be weird to go somewhere in the UK and not be able to get Yorkshire puddings just in a supermarket. Yeah, definitely. Like It's it's a thing if you have sunday roast well sunday roast doesn't require yorkshire puddings but yes, i think it it's a general consensus that it's a better sunday roast if you've got yorkshire puddings um so the first thing i learned is that um hannah glass our, our old friend hannah glass from the art of cookery um in 1747 seems to have been the one who started calling it a Yorkshire pudding or at least popularized the name. Okay. Uh, before that is referred to as a dripping pudding. Um, is, is that from you're supposed to make it very hot in fat to make it crispy? Well, the idea is that you put the batter um the phrase that i found in a 1737 book the whole duty of a woman or an infallible guide to the fair sex containing rules directions and observations for their conduct and behavior of life as virgins wives or widows unsurprisingly written by a very rich man oh, that's um, a mouthful. <laughs> 18th century book titles are just like that um yeah, it's, it gives instructions to make a good batter as for pancakes, put in a hot toss pan, um, which is kind of like a roasting tin, over the fire with a bit of butter to fry the bottom a little, then put the, 
pan and butter under a shoulder of mutton instead of a dripping pan, keeping frequently shaking it by the handle, and it will be light and savoury and fit to take up when your mutton is enough, then turn in a dish and serve it hot. So it's basically Ooh. an idea of cooking it in a little bit of butter, but mostly in the fat dripping off a spit-roasted meat joint. Oh, I see. Just, just dripping I mean, is basically a phrase that just means the fat that comes off a roasted joint. Nowadays, it normally means like specifically beef fat, um, which is also known as tallow. It's, it's yeah, tallow right. candles and beef dripping. It's basically the same substance. My dad describes um, his uncle as coming home every evening after work and having dripping on bread. Yeah, bread and dripping is a very <laughs> like working class fills you up kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's calories. It's yeah, in like handy form. <laughs> you might make fun of traditional British food, but most of it is just there to keep your body going while you go and do a lot of hard work. So don't be mean to working class food. Um, but yeah, so the the basic idea was, you know, you're making something that is going to fill you up to kind of let the meat go further. Mm -hmm. um, you'd even sometimes serve the Yorkshire pudding or the dripping pudding rather as a starter. <laughs> Just as is, like hot with the meat fat on it. Okay. Um, it was apparently a saying for a while. Um, I I need to put on my my best Yorkshire voice. Uh, where's the? Sorry, I've lost the quote now. Um, yeah, put on my best Yorkshire voice. Them that eats most pudding gets most meat. This is basically if you make Yorkshire pudding. Your meat will stretch further. That makes sense. Um, I think it was uh, very deceptive of you as a Lancastrian to put on a Yorkshire accent. I mean, it, it's mostly how you do the buzz. <laughs> That's true. You can't do that any other way. That and Lancastrians swallow our vowels a lot more than Yorkshire does, I think. Hmm. It's hard to describe, but I know what I mean. Um, <laughs> that's how communication works. Um, <laughs> so there is um, so a food historian called uh, William Sitwell speculated that possibly the association with Yorkshire is um, the association with coal. And the idea of using a coal fire rather than a wood fire, letting it get hotter so the batter will get crispier. Okay. But okay. considering so, yeah. it was being called that from the 1740s when it was still very much a dripping pudding rather than a separate mm -hmm. factor, I'm not entirely convinced about that. Okay. That is never a mystery. But interestingly, I think... Um, yeah, in very poor households, you would actually just possibly buy 
dripping or like leftover fat trimmings from the butcher and just make the Yorkshire puddings themselves mm. and not actually with meat just get the calories from the the fat portion mm. yeah you get you get the meaty taste um but you don't have to buy the meat mm. yeah there was also potentially like i said serving the pudding as a starter with the gravy and then this is in a much more middle class setting and then having your roast with more of like a parsley sauce okay that's the kind of thing a fancy restaurant would do today like have a yorkshire pudding starter oh it definitely would or go completely the other way and do what i've seen on some like christmas markets and that with what what is called the yorkshire burrito which is apparently a thing since like the 2010s where you just get a big yorkshire pudding and then you put slices of meat and a bit of stuffing and sometimes some mustard and a tiny bit of gravy and then you just fold it like a burrito and eat it you can't see my face right now but it's a picture <laughs> i mean i'm i'm probably going to Yeah, I haven't been brave enough to get one yet, mostly just because it seems like the single most filling street food that I've ever heard of. But I'm probably going to have to at some point just out of a sort of morbid curiosity. It does sound like something you have to try at least once. I, I need to know, is that is that a general view or is that just calling me out specifically? Everyone. No, I'm talking okay. to everyone here. Eat the Yorkshire burrito. Live life with both hands. <laughs> Something about that phrase makes me uncomfortable, but I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Um, yeah, interestingly, you could potentially have a three-course meal that all has Yorkshire puddings in. Because you could have it as a starter, you can have it in your roast. Um, and some people would have it sort of left over the next day with things like cream and fruit syrups. Um, Don't know how I feel about that if it's got the dripping on it. Well, I guess ultimately it is still a big puffy pancake. Like there's um, a pancake called a Dutch baby, which is basically a big a sweet yorkshire pudding okay i mean yeah I, I guess i guess do you remember that that year that for your birthday we did like a are you suggesting we need dinner? to repeat that with a three-course yorkshire pudding dinner maybe. maybe but yeah like i was talking to a friend who is in like pastry school um who was basically saying yeah there is basically no functional difference between a big Yorkshire pudding made the modern way and a Dutch baby. Um, okay. Interestingly, there there is a version of Yorkshire puddings called a popover in the US um that are also known as laplanders but i cannot find a reason for that 
Um, including there's a version called a Portland popover, which has garlic and herbs in it, which sounds delicious, quite frankly. Oh yeah, that like, sounds if, really if good. If you're gonna, it feels like just acknowledging that it's a savory pancake and just going for it. <laughs> yeah. Crunchy savory pancake. Mm. That would be great if you were to have like you know those places that serve like a whole roast dinner in a Yorkshire pudding. Oh, and my mum has been known to do that. Like she she will make like a plate sized Yorkshire pudding each, and then put the whole roast dinner inside it. Oh, yes. Um. So there is also a the toad in the hole, which is completely different to the American meaning of toad in the hole, which is basically. Um, I've seen it used to mean the thing where you make a hole in a slice of bread and then fry an egg and the bread at the same time with the egg inside the bread. Okay. I mean, I guess like the rational part of me thinks that that makes sense. It's the same thing. It's like a, a thing within another thing, which is also what our toad in the hole is. But like the emotional part of me is like, oh, it's sausages and batter. So yeah, a, a toad in the hole is basically a giant Yorkshire pudding with sausages cooked inside it um which is again a concept that pops up in both hannah glass and uh, mrs beaton uh hannah glass uses pigeon and mrs beaton uses steak and kidney Ow. neither of them um, there's also a Italian British cook um called Charles Francatelli. Isn't he the he one? Was, that was yes. Um cook? he also published a cookbook called The Modern Cook, where he just uh, specifies ah. a shilling worth of any kind of cheap meat. Um but he seems to be one of the behind. first people to call it Toad in the Hole in print. Although Hannah Glass's pigeon version okay. is called Pigeon in the Hole, which suggests that it was known as that kind of thing in the 1700s. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like it was a... There were a lot of things with whimsical names back then, right? Um, should probably clarify, there is no record of it ever being made with Toad. It's just people being silly. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's something that I assumed when I was a kid that was at, at some point someone must have made it with toad. People eat frogs. Okay, I, yeah. And, and I was I was a very literal minded child. <laughs> um. So the last thing I want to say about Yorkshire puddings, just because it amuses me, um. So there was. A man in, yeah, relatively recently moved to the Rockies and wrote to the Royal Society of Chemistry as being like, why, why doesn't my Yorkshire pudding work at higher altitudes? Because it wouldn't rise properly. Um, 
the answer to which is physics, physics, chemistry, physics, um, something to do with the pressure, the same as how you can't, like water boils at lower temperatures at higher altitudes. I am not a scientist. Um, but as a result of that, the Royal Society of Chemistry just decided that it was their place to say in 2008 that a Yorkshire pudding isn't a Yorkshire pudding if it is less than four inches tall, which is quite tall. <laughs> I mean, are we going around putting rules on it now? Like, who are they? To, like, I feel to like it that? was a mostly joking thing. But also, that's very tall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is quite tall. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's so not fair. That guy in the Rockies is not going to be able to do that. Um, actually, there is one more thing, which is that there is a thing on... Because, you know, Lancashire and Yorkshire rivalry has become somewhat silly over the years. Um, yeah, it's it nowadays. It's more like just a traditional. Yeah, there are very few right. people who would actually take it seriously. Um, but yes, there is the annual World Black Pudding Throwing Championships in Ramsbottom in Greater Manchester, where you throw your black pudding at a pile of Yorkshire puddings. Um, allegedly to symbolise the victory of Lancashire over Yorkshire in the Wars of the Roses. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds extremely made it up. It absolutely is. But also, it's a thing you can now do in Ramsbottom. Oh, that's very funny. If you're on the tourist trail in Manchester, there you go. I mean, I, I still need to go to the Ramsbottom <laughs> Chocolate Festival, so I think I just need to spend some time in Ramsbottom and, and throw some pudding. <laughs> we get the pudding throwing contest uh, marked as intangible <laughs> cultural heritage. So that's my final Yorkshire pudding fact, is that... One day a year, you can throw black puddings at a stack of them in the middle of the street in Manchester. The year it's Andy Burnham will get you. <laughs> Personally. I'm sorry, Andy. I'm sure you're very nice. Just imagining him running down the street brandishing <laughs> a black pudding. <laughs> um... So if, if you want to buy me a bus ticket to Ramsbottom, we are on Patreon as Bread and Thread, where you can get access to the Discord server where we chat about things that we've been making and about the episodes. Um, monthly recipes. And if you give us 10... can't remember what the default currency is. I think it's $10 or a bit under £10, um, we will make you a bonus episode on anything you want, up to and including throwing puddings at things. We will intrepidly go to the Pudding Throwing Festival and find out with our own eyes and ears uh, what what is going on.
I mean, considering that the podcast is now on YouTube, it's very tempting to go and just like get some footage to put up. I I don't know when it is. Hopefully, hopefully it'll be on this year. Fingers crossed, and we can go. (laughs) I feel like that is quite easy to socially distance a pudding Mm. growing event, probably. So yes, thank you for listening, and please, please buy me a ticket to it, lovely listeners. I I want to throw the pudding. <laughs> I support your pudding throwing dreams. Yeah, then our next episode will be a bio one, so stay tuned for us trying to talk about Mr. Kellogg's objections while remaining a clean podcast. That's going to be fantastic.